Welcome to Wise Health for Women Radio with Linda Prater. Women are pressed daily to give more, learn more, and be more, often at the expense of mind, body, or spirit. Each week with intriguing guests and topics, we'll bring you fresh ways to view your limited time, encouraging a shift to new, healthier perspectives. Wise Health for Women Radio, helping women thrive. And now here's your host, Linda Prater. Greetings and welcome to Wise Health for Women Radio. We are helping women thrive by talking about things that really help you understand being a woman better, to understand the things that you might have wanted to ask but couldn't. And we are continuing our series with Lorinda uh, Fontaine Ferris with the GYN questions you want to ask but are seldom given the time to do so. And in our first program with Lorinda, we talked about menopause and hormones and things like that that were you know, really the top on the list, the submitted questions. And we're going to be continuing today with additional questions that have been submitted for discussion. And we put at the top of the show that we're not providing medical advice on this program, but really an honest discussion from a professional, a medical professional who, who does know the answers and can get you guided on how to ask the right questions if these are things that concern you. So welcome back to Wise Health Woman Radio, Lorinda. We're delighted to have you. And I'm delighted to be here, Linda. Thank you so much for inviting me back. Well, it's a pleasure because I, I think that we found there was such widespread support for answering questions that the medical community has so little time for these days. And I was surprised by the submitted questions, which is what we're going to talk about today, um, combined with some of the questions that you say you get in your practice all the time. Sounds good. I look forward to tackling these questions one by one. (laughs) Perfect. Okay. Let's talk about the fact that as women get older, they are looking for birth control that works for them. Maybe they've been on the pill since they were very young. Maybe they'd like to get off the pill. Maybe they have been on different kinds of birth control and and just really want to change it up. But they really don't want a late in life child. Or they have come through a relationship and, and are starting a new relationship and are considering what is the best, in quotes, birth control at their age? What do, you, what do you suggest, recommend, or the questions that you ask? Wow. Yeah, it's, um, I'm, you, for those of you who got to know me a little bit on the last show, I am very much, uh, you know, my first answer is always, it really depends on the patient. What, of course, um, there are so many factors involved. The biggest question, I think, to start with is hormones or no hormones? And that's always a difficult uh, question. It depends on what's going on for the woman. You know, the, the woman who's having a lot of bleeding, let's say, if she's on the birth control, she started to have some irregular bleeding and she's tired of taking a pill every day. That woman is very different than a woman who, say, has been on an um, an IUD for 10 years and she's ready for something different. She's having hot flashes. So everyone is, 
is very different. It also matters greatly as to the status of that woman's health. You know, um, I in America, we have a lot of obesity, a lot of diabetes, heart disease. And if that is the scenario for a woman, then we really want to kind of talk about what are our options away from hormones. So there's not necessarily a, quote, best birth control. It um, really depends on what's happening for that woman. Now, that being said, I think there is a lot of benefit to kind of starting to wean off of hormones if mm-hmm. that if that's possible you know you know not every woman um, is in a relationship where they're excited about using condoms let's say or um, you know not every woman is excited about using an IUD that doesn't have hormones Um, so it really depends on the woman, but the nice thing is in my 20 years of practicing, oh my gosh, Linda, we have so many more options for women today than it's amazing. Yes, it is. And I invite women to not assume that they, you know, know what's available, that making that appointment to go in and at least, you know, kind of do their research and see what they want to talk about with their healthcare provider because there may be some options. Things like the newer ring is an option that a lot of women, even if they kind of know about it, they don't know all the details and um, you know things like the Nuva ring uh, and then the Morena IUD, the Skyla IUD. There are some options that are great transitions into the world of no hormones. So there's just so many options. It's wonderful. I could talk forever, obviously, about this topic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's an important topic because uh, let's say someone has uh, divorced and re-entering a different sexual phase of their life. And and so it's important to cover these contingencies. Um, And you make an excellent point with new options. So the encouragement you're providing, if I could sum it up, is to find out what is new out there and make an appointment and ask the questions directly. Best fitting you. Would that be correct? Exactly. And if she hasn't, you know, taking care of herself lately, meaning, you know, women are so great at taking their children to the doctor Mm -hmm. or getting their, their partner to the doctor, whatever. If she hasn't had, you know, regular labs and those kinds of things, that's a very appropriate time to get that kind of stuff done. Perfect. Perfect. Following along those same lines is um, this question was very interesting, was sent to us. And it was obviously from personal experience. And it was about dating later in life and STDs. Because if you were part of a relationship for a very long period of time, say you were married for 20 years and then divorced or widowed, um, and you come back to dating, you may be out of practice with what is possible to uh, contract in terms of sexually transmitted diseases. And when you're thinking about entering a new relationship, what is the standard screening for men and women looking to be responsible? Because it's no fun being awkward, asking your would-be partner if you don't know how to ask. And then second 
question on that is how do you obtain that order and what do you say? What are you on the lookout for? I love this question, Linda, um, because I do see this a lot in my practice and I have found that there seems to be two camps of women. You know, on one side you have women who are perhaps far too trusting, thinking that, oh, well, you know, we're older, I don't need to worry as much about that. Um, or, you know, he or I've only had a few partners in our lives. And then we have women on the other side who are scared to death to think about a relationship with anyone <laughs> for, for fear of, of, you know, sexually transmitted infections. Right. And so the Centers for Disease Control is the governing body around um, STDs. And currently the standard screening for STDs, of course, is HIV, gonorrhea, chlamydia, normally a syphilis screen. And uh, some folks do a hepatitis panel and others don't. I think a hepatitis panel is, is a good thing to have mm -hmm. thrown in there, so to speak. Now, that being said, those being the screening test, that does not mean a woman or a man is being, quote, tested for everything. Screening and getting tested for everything are two different things. Okay. Um, common things that are not in a screening panel, one of the most common ones is the herpes virus. Right. That, that is because you can be exposed to the herpes virus, herpes virus, never have an outbreak, never have an issue, and um, so there's nothing that, that needs to be done. There's nothing even that you need to do differently in your relationships. You know, you need to be using condoms until you know someone's history better. Um, and so I think that's a misnomer. People think, oh, I was tested for everything. Well, that's different than the screening. There's also, um, a, I don't want to say a common STD, but it, it tends to be more common in folks who are back in the dating scene. Mm -hmm. It's um, trichomonas. It is an STD that um, for women uh, tend to be more symptomatic than men. So a man, I've seen where men can go years um, without knowing that they have it. Um, whereas women, generally speaking, within three to four weeks of being exposed to this STD, they oftentimes will start to have vaginal itching symptoms that do not go away. And the only way or the best way to test for that for a woman is to go in, get an exam. We take a, a swab from her vaginal area and look at it under the microscope. There are also tests you can send um, to the lab to be tested, but it's not part of a normal screening and it's not normally, even if you go in and say, I want to be tested for everything in today's current system, it's not something that's normally tested for. Again, because people, you know, unless a woman is symptomatic, she's not going to be tested for it. So those are some important details for women to be aware of. I think they're huge details, and we're coming up on a break. Okay. But um, I would love to continue this discussion because I have another aspect of it I want to ask you about. And 
we'll, we'll talk about that after the break. But these are important questions to answer because I think what you have just shed on the difference between a screening and a true testing for specific things is very different. And so that tells people how to talk to their provider in, in asking for whatever it is that they are seeking and for the purpose that they're seeking. So thank you for delineating between those two because I don't believe that I even was clear on that when you're talking about the very specifics in our medical system that are tiny little vagaries that if you don't know, you, you may feel a false sense of security. So we're going to go on a short break. We're talking to Lorinda Fontaine Farris about GYN questions you've always wanted to ask. We're giving you the time to hear the answers. We're Wise Health for Women Radio, and we'll return after these short messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. The New York Times reported that the benefits of eating a solid breakfast are hard to dispute. They cited emerging research that suggests another advantage to consistently eating breakfast is a reduced risk of type 2 diabetes. A study published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition showed that people who skipped breakfast on a regular basis had a 21% higher risk of developing diabetes. We know that those who omit breakfast suffer setbacks in memory, mood, and energy levels. And eating the all-important first meal of the day is thought to stabilize blood sugar throughout the day. So choose a healthy and nutritious breakfast to start your day and to decrease your risk of developing type 2 diabetes. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. Welcome back. We are talking with Lorinda Fontaine Ferris, and we were talking prior to the break about sexually transmitted diseases and the prevalence that we are seeing in a later population after uh, maybe not being as knowledgeable about what is prevalent out there at this point and how to get the screening, which she was very helpful on providing that in, information. So there are also times when someone has brought home and an STD in a perfectly stable or thoughtfully uh, perfectly stable relationship and that can be a shocker and how would you suggest that that is handled other than obviously medically because it's more than that that's also a, a real betrayal on so many levels and the prevalence is high but beyond just being inconvenient or embarrassing there are also cancer risks with STDs. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. And I think um, the number one thing I want to talk about here is is um, applicable for women of all ages because um, we are seeing a rise in throat cancer mm-hmm. um, related to the HPV, the human papilloma virus. You know, this is the same virus that can cause cervical cancer. And people tend to think of oral sex as being kind of, quote, 
less worrisome in, you know, the world of sexual intercourse. And that couldn't be further from the truth. And that is true for men and for women. Um, so having oral sex is uh, fine, but it, it it's better when it is protected. Um, because again, that risk is very real. And as I've said, um, you know, people just need to be uh, aware of that. So that being said, um, if a woman learns that um, she has an STD because her partner has been unfaithful in the relationship, uh, I think one of the biggest things I see, of course, is just a lot of anger and a lot of um, frustration. And I think there's definitely a mental health component that a woman, um, I really love for women to seek someone to talk to about all of that anger and do, do the appropriate thing with all of those feelings that she's having. Um, the other piece, of course, medically is that I really prefer for a woman to come in, have an exam and so we can look at that vaginal area inside, outside, um, and in the oral cavity in the mouth if um, they have had oral sex. And um, of course, do all of the STD tests. And then there needs to be follow-up within three months for all those STD tests to happen again. I think that's another thing that gets interesting. Yes, that gets missed a lot is people think, well, I had the test and now I'm I'm okay. The other thing I see is people coming in and um, you know they they had intercourse with their partner a week ago, and so that's too soon to really do the STD testing. Um, you really are better off to wait a good six to eight weeks after that contact to get adequate testing. Now that's, you know, if a woman wants to come in and have an exam and, and because just because she's so upset, that's, it's not going to hurt anything. And you may discover, you know, say trichomonas, that's something you're going to see right away. Or you may see a herpes lesion that she's not sim yet symptomatic. But for the other STD tests like your HIV, gonorrhea, chlamydia, those you're going to want to wait a good six weeks from the time of contact. But again, do another repeat testing in three months. And these are all um, according to the Centers for Disease Control Guidelines. You know, I think it's so important that you mentioned the throat cancer and that oral sex is is just as prevalent in terms of spreading some of these. Is it not true that herpes can also be spread through oral sex as well? So a simple, uh, what people call a cold sore or a fever blister through oral sex can also result in genital herpes. Still um, being, there's, there's two, isn't there? There's a, a simplex one and a simplex two. Absolutely, and you can have either of those in either location. So you can have herpes simplex 2 around the mouth area from having had oral sex and vice versa. You can have a type 1 lesion on the genital area. So they Tell can people what uh, simplex 1 and simplex 2 are. I come from the pharmaceutical industry, so I, I happen to know that, but I'm not sure every one of our listeners does. Yes, I apologize. Um, That's fine. The 
herpes simplex 2 is what most people associate we call it genital herpes but it does not mean that it it's it can only be in the genital area and then herpes simplex 1 is what we think of as you know a cold sore around our mouth generally is is what that is referred to but again that can be in either location and there's a test that can determine that and does that determine the treatment Yes and no. Let me explain. This is another misnomer. I mean, you can go and have blood testing that will specifically say, tell you what types of the virus you have been exposed to. So you can have someone who has never had a lesion on their body. They specifically ask to have the herpes testing and then, of course, it's quite upsetting to learn that, oh, yes, I've been exposed to the virus. Um, but And in that case, by the way, you're not going to do anything. You don't need to do anything unless the patient has symptoms, unless she has some lesions, you know, mm-hmm. some sores that start to happen. Um, so, and then if a woman has actual lesions, then, yes, the what you've tested for is going to determine what you're going to use for medication. And the other piece of that, the only way to adequately test for herpes is when a person comes in with an open sore and we take a swab from that open sore. That tells you exactly which type of the virus is at that location and that is the most specific testing. It's the one I much prefer, but it sometimes can be really challenging to catch because if the lesion isn't at its most raw point, mm-hmm. um, then you may not get enough um, salute, you know, what we call exudate, um, kind of the A sample. Yes, exactly. So, um, yeah, these are all details that can be maddening when you're trying to be tested, but they are details that really matter. Well, they are, and I think that the, the most prevalent thing to do is to turn to Dr. Google. And so <laughs> 6,543,000 responses later, you're convinced that you have a forever horrible uh, life condition Um so it, it, in some ways, Dr. Google can truly make things worse. But what I'm hearing you say is there are ways to do this. And the information you're giving out, the specifics of you know, what to be able to ask for so that you are covered uh, as much as possible when these occasions occur. So there's a, a final piece to this that is pretty interesting in that there are huge numbers being reported in nursing homes of STDs being spread um, between men and women with the advent of the use of Viagra by the men and the women who are, you know, ill-prepared to to face multiple partners. Um, and, and unfortunately, this is happening at large numbers to the point where the studies are being done. It's an interesting topic. Um, I am not exaggerating when I, <laughs> I, I have seen patients, you know, obviously the, these aren't 
nursing home patients, but I have had women come in and say to me, please, please take away his Viagra. Um, because what, you know, I think um, in my opinion, I honestly, nursing homes need to have condoms just like other healthcare facilities have. Um, and uh, I think that that's important for family members of um, folks who are in nursing homes to be aware of that and um, bring in some condoms to your mom or your grandma. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a difficult thought to get my head around right yes. there. <laughs> <laughs> but it is something that is truly growing. I mean, those are not just scare tactic headlines, are they? I, you know, I don't work in a nursing home, so I, I mm -hmm. can't speak uh, intelligently about that. But I, I um, obviously, you know, Viagra is prescribed for a reason and, you know, intercourse is part of that reason. And so it's a population that is no different than any other. They need to use protection um, to protect themselves from sexually transmitted diseases. And, and it's entirely possible with the current age group of folks who would be in a nursing home that, you know, they have may have spent most of their, a good majority of their lives not having had STD testing. And that's an important piece. A very important piece. Unfortunately, we're coming up on another break. And I think we have definitely covered STDs in depth, at least to give some of the bigger picture of the questions that we were given. Um, thank you for that, because I learned an awful lot during that discussion. I know our listeners did as well. And so we will continue after the break. And we're going to talk about mammograms. And the controversies over the standard guidelines say this, and my doctor says this. And as usual, medical uh, practice is a practice. And we will talk about that after the break. You're listening to Wise Health for Women Radio, and we'll be back after these short messages. We're Wise Health for Women Radio, and we'll return after these short messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Looking younger and feeling younger seems to be a top priority of countless Americans. There are several age-defined creams and lotions to help you feel and look younger. But the best and easiest way to look and feel more youthful is to lose weight. If you are carrying around extra weight, whether it's 10 pounds or 100 pounds, the preeminent way to look younger is to lose that weight and to live an active life. Walking around with that excess weight not only adds years of wear and tear to you, it also decreases your energy level, so you act older. By getting rid of that weight, you put bounce back in your step and feel and look so much better. It's not all about how you look either. The most important aspect is that you improve your health and live a healthy life. So if you're searching for ways to look younger, don't head for the plastic surgeon's office. Head for the gym instead. Welcome back, and we're continuing our discussion about GYN questions you'd like to ask but just don't ever get the time to do. So we're going to talk next about 
what is the current status of mammograms? For a while, there was a standard that said, uh, have it done every year at 50. Then there were other standards that came out and said every two years. Uh, what is your suggestion? And what are some of the visible signs or feelings or, or discoveries that should prompt you to make a doctor's visit and uh, have them further checked out? Oh, this is another topic I love, Linda. Um, <laughs> the reason being is things come out in the media around these guidelines, like how often to have a mammogram. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's very confusing and details aren't explained. There are different governing bodies in medicine. For instance, all of your primary care health providers have the U.S. Preventive Task Force that creates guidelines on how for them to practice. And then in my world of obstetrics and gynecology, you have the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists that are, is our governing body, if you will. And so it's hard to believe, but it's true. <laughs> different governing bodies have different recommendations. And so in my world, in obstetrics and gynecology, the recommendation is annually after the age of 40. 40? Yes. And Interesting. Okay. For the U.S. Preventive Task Force, they are recommending every two years after the age of 50. And so that's where confusion comes in, of course. Why would it not? Mm -hmm. Um and this is where I say to people, you know what? Your personal history matters. And that's what Excellent needs, point. needs to be taken into an account. If I have a woman who has, well, once a woman has, if she has a significant family history, meaning her mother or her sister had breast cancer, that's a, that's an, a different world. Um, and, you know, there's no worry about, oh, well, we'll wait until you're 40. No, you're going to start screening much earlier. You're going to do things differently. But for the average woman, again, in my world, starting at the age of 40, if this woman doesn't have a family history, can we go every two years? Absolutely. I am a big fan of a woman ensuring that she is doing her own monthly breast exam because a woman is going to find changes on her breasts. You know, if she's putting, doing her exam once a month, she's going to notice changes far sooner than coming in to see us once, once a year. Mm -hmm. um, and so it really just depends on the woman. You know, also if a woman has larger breasts, that can be more difficult for her to be really sure she's doing her exam and actually getting underneath that tissue to really get a good exam. And so she may be somebody that, yeah, we do want to do a mammogram every year. You know, she feels better about getting that mammogram versus I have patients who they really don't want the to have to go through the testing. They don't want the exposure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it again, it depends on if, if it's going to stress someone out and they don't have a family history, 
I'm a big fan of going every two years, but it just depends on the patient. Talk about the difference between a, a, a regular screening mammogram and I think it's called a diagnostic mammogram that is the 3D one. Yes, there, depending on where you are in the healthcare system, you know, there are still, I want to say, quote, the old fashioned, you know, just standard um, one view mammogram, a screening mammogram. You can what I call the squish test. Exactly. <laughs> now you that same machinery can do diagnostic testing. It doesn't, you know, essentially you're just getting more views. It doesn't have to be a different machine, let's say. Okay. Many places are have this more advanced technology, digital technology, the 3D, all of that sort of stuff. And it's the same thing. You can get a standard screening mammogram or you can get a diagnostic mammogram with those machines. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not a radiologist. <laughs> However, I'm sorry, the, the Skype broke up for a second. Can you say that again? Sure. I said it's important to know I'm not a radiologist, um, but I work closely with the radiologists where at our facility. Uh, we have, you know, mammography services there. There are so many other factors involved, you know, getting that screening mammogram is, I feel, the most important piece, because at least then we have a rough picture, whether it's, quote, old technology or new technology. I tell people, I'm not so sure that it's important to get wrapped up in those details, unless something is discovered on that screening mammogram, then yeah, we, you know, we may want to get a, an ultrasound versus a diagnostic mammogram. You know, that ultrasound can do a much better job at looking through denser breast tissue. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, and everyone, you know, I hear women assuming that, you know, because they're say 65 years old, they don't have breast um, dense breast tissue anymore and that's not true mm -hmm. that the denseness of the breast tissue depends on genetics depends on fitness level you know how much muscular tissue is in there to, that can mm -hmm. interfere with the reading of the mammogram there's just a lot of factors involved in that and so um, the screening mammogram whether it's old-fashioned or new gee whiz kind of technology is um, at least it's a, a view of that breast tissue and we kind of go from there and determine, does she need diagnostic? Now, that being said, um, I do want to add a caveat in here. For women who have breast implants, um, that is someone who should be having diagnostic mammograms, not the regular screening mammogram because the screening mammogram isn't going to be able to see what we need to see. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it's interesting because I know that um, from friends of mine, if, if you constantly have a mammogram that brings up questions and you're sent for the secondary, it takes about two years, maybe three on the annual exams, and then you're sent for the ultrasound one automatically. 
because your breasts are either dense, as you mentioned, or there's a, a suspicious, um, I don't know, something left over from cystitis that looks funny on a regular mammogram. So instead of having to do the one two-step process, they, they are then placed in the uh, ultrasound category right away so that they don't have to do the one two-step. But again, it depends on your medical facility, your medical insurance, the availability, the co-pays. Our medical system is very complex these days and it makes up decisions. But what I'm hearing you say that look at your medical history, talk it over with your doctor and decide based on that, you know, the screening prevalence and by all means do your monthly breast checks. Would that be a good summation? Absolutely. Interesting. Thank you for sharing all of that because I think there's a lot to it and we, we just, we do what we're told when we're, the orders are written. And so it's, it's nice to know that there can be a conversation about some of this. Let's move into another area that is also prevalent. Um, when a woman has already gone through menopause, the doctors usually say, um, now be on the lookout for any bleeding and call me immediately there's this sense of urgency that is given. Can you put that comment into perspective? What are they saying it for? And what are the concerns that are being voiced by the sense of urgency over, call me with any report of bleeding, no matter how small? I'm gathering with this question that this is a woman who is after menopause, postmenopausal. Postmenopausal, that's correct. Okay. Um, normally, when they are talking about, I, again, this is a, a detail, but I, I love details. <laughs> when they talk about vaginal bleeding, usually they're referring to bleeding that is very likely coming from the uterus. However, they will also, we give those same instructions to women who have had a hysterectomy um, because if there is to be any bleeding coming from that vaginal area, it's something that we're going want, that we want to explore. Generally speaking, it is a woman who ha still has her uterus and the concern is that if you can visualize a uterus, it looks like a, you know, a, a pear shape um, organ. Inside that uterus, we, there's something called the endometrial stripe. It's basically just the lining of the uterus. And once a woman is postmenopausal, we want that lining of that uterus to be skinny. Mm -hmm. In fact, we want it to be less than five millimeters in thickness. And we want it to be a nice, even five millimeters throughout the entire uterus. In other words, we don't want five millimeters in one area and 15 millimeters in another. We want it uniform all throughout. Because remember, back when she was bleeding, that lining would get really, would thicken up each month. And when she, you know, wasn't pregnant, and would go through her menstrual cycle, that lining bleeds out. So now that she's no longer having that ebb and flow of hormones, that lining, we want it to stay nice and thin. 
So if she's having vaginal bleeding, the assumption is that that lining could have thickened and it's not going to, you know, it's, it's trying to, to get out. And so normally, um, if it, it depends on the amount of bleeding that she has, but she should um, report it and get seen because she may or may not need what's called an endometrial biopsy, um, okay. where we take a sample, a random sample um, of that and lining. We are coming up on another break, Lorinda. I'm so very sorry. We will continue this discussion after the break and finish your answer because we don't want to cut you off. This is vital information. Thank you so much. And we're going to go on our, our last break for this show. We, which I know we're going to have part three because our questions are still many. Thank you for listening. Just a quick break. We'll be right back. We're Wise Health for Women Radio, and we'll return after these short messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. It's baseball season, and many people are thinking about hot dogs. New research published in the journal Circulation found that eating one serving of processed meat a day was associated with a 42% higher risk of heart disease and a 19% increased risk of diabetes. Processed meats include hot dogs, bacon, deli meat, sausage, and salami. The culprit isn't just the saturated fat or cholesterol, it's the levels of sodium and chemical preservatives. Processed meats have about four times more sodium and 50% more nitrate preservatives than unprocessed meats. These new findings are another reason to limit your intake of meat, especially processed meats. Keeping your diet mainly full of vegetables, fruit, and whole grains will help you keep your weight down and your body healthy. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. Welcome back. Lorinda, we were talking before the break and you had not completed your answer on vaginal bleeding, spotting the perspective, what you're looking for, etc. So I want to give you the opportunity to continue. Yes, we were talking about that, you know, if that lining of that uterus, the endometrial stripe, is um, thicker than the five millimeters, and normally we initially discover that through ordering a pelvic ultrasound, and, um, you know, the woman may need an endometrial biopsy where we take a sample of that tissue just to make sure there isn't any cancerous, there aren't any cancerous cells there causing the bleeding. And the majority of the time, there is no cancer there. And then we talk about what we're going to do for management from there. But it is important, particularly, again, um, a woman's weight can factor into this vaginal bleeding issue. I think that's an important, really? an important piece. Yes, because um, our fat cells uh, have a weak estrogen, and that estrogen can contribute to that lining of the uterus getting thicker. And so I tell women, what you eat, your exercise, all that stuff that we you know, tend to yammer on about in healthcare really does matter. Mm -hmm. And it matters postmenopausally 
And um, so that's an important piece. Um, and then the other piece of this is if a woman has a uterus and she's taking hormones, she needs to be making sure that she's taking both progesterone and the estrogen. I mean, generally speaking, women are really happy about the estrogen because it helps with hot flashes and helps with their memory and a whole bunch of other stuff. But she should not be on that estrogen without progesterone because, again, that progesterone helps keep that lining of the uterus in check in terms of, you know, its thickness. Mm -hmm. So, yes, but I really I want to swing back to that. Um, the obesity crisis in this country has we've seen an increase in endometrial cancer across the board, not just in postmenopausal women. So that's an important piece. Well, let's expand upon that a little bit. You know, you think about weight issues, blood pressure, cholesterol, uh, metabolic syndrome, um, all of those types of things, uh, cardiac issues. But I, I, this is pretty interesting that it also can lead to problems in endometrial cancer. Um, yes. So when, but you talk about, you know, we're taught, we yammer on in the medical profession. No, they don't. In general, there is not a lot of discussion about nutrition. There's, there's discussion about uh, losing weight, um, but it's, it's done for, well, it will help your knees or it will help your, your cardiac history or something like that. But now you're talking some very important additional motivators for some women, why isn't that a more known fact, what you just mentioned? Because I had not heard that before. Yes, I think, uh, you know, again, I know, Linda, we've talked about this before. They, the time with a patient is right. constantly being whittled down. And I think that this is, you know, what is sacrificed, in my opinion, is, you know, just the patient and the provider getting to know each other, getting to really have good discussions about what needs to happen for the patient. I want to stress the, um, when I first started practicing, we did not have to worry about 18 year olds having endometrial cancer, but that is not true in today's world. We are seeing 18 year olds with cancer of the uterus due to being, you know, overweight for such a lengthy period of time. Wow. So, 18 years old? So these, so these young women who are overweight early, that's devastating news. And again, it goes back to because our fat cells make a weak estrogen. So remember, estrogen is the hormone that's responsible for that thickening of the of the lining of the uterus each month and so the heavier we are the more estrogen our body is making and um, over time that can create some problems I don't want to scare women I simply want to bring some explanation to why it's you know what we eat really matters and you know the amount of activity we get or don't get really matters and so, you know, in our system, healthcare has become so complicated, but in some ways, it really is so simple. It's what we eat and what we do and what we think that right. matters. 
Yes. You know, it's it's fascinating though because I think people think, well, they're young or you know they were a, a heavy baby, um, but they have been proving that. Um, obesity at an earlier age leads to later medical issues. And so it is important, um, not simply for appearance, not simply for cardiac health, but for a myriad of other reasons. 18-year-old with uterine cancer, I had not heard of that. That's really sad. And so are you working, well, you are you know, functional. You work at the root causes of things. So you would work with uh, a patient on nutrition and activity and what they eat and that kind of thing. But the general public usually doesn't know that. Well, that's why we're doing this show. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's why we're doing this show. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so obesity pay, plays into your female women's health in a very big way from a very early point. Um right to the bitter end. So that's that's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. We have this maybe 10 minutes left. And so we're going to talk again, another question submitted by one of our listeners. And it was submitted by a woman who said, you know, I understand libido is really important. And I'm looking forward to this later aspect of my life. Because I really am looking for some of the closeness as opposed to some of the the mad intercourse and sex that, you know, was more prevalent in my 40s and even 50s. One woman wrote in that the doctor said that when women lose interest in sex, it's a factor in men seeking affairs, which is pretty much a yikes comment because there there is... Well, presumably, in a long relationship, some sort of communication about these kinds of things. And while Viagra is available, it's sold on a fear factor in many cases, not on a need factor. Can you talk about that in the, the younger years and then the later years, libido, intimacy, and, and the phases of life? Gosh, you know. <laughs> Here's a question for you. <laughs> Yes. You know, my feminist self, um, and and of course, I can't help but not bring that feminist self to my clinical practice. (laughs) Um, You know, if uh, there's any questions around affairs as a result of a woman not, you know, quote, having enough sex with her partner, then it's time to find a new partner. Um, (laughs) A whole different set of questions. Yes. But I think that um, libido is, it can be a complicated issue. And I think that, you know, at the outset of any relationship, you know, people enter into those relationships with different expectations um, sometimes. And I think that that's something that needs to be discussed in a relationship. You know, if, if, you have one partner who, okay, adequate amounts of intercourse is daily for one, and the other one is satisfied with once a month. I think that's something that needs to be discussed. And it, it's something that needs to be discussed throughout the relationship because that can change with a person's job, you know, a person's stress. Uh, mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. For either partner. I'm not going to pick on men here, <laughs> you know, for either. It takes two. <laughs> exactly. And um, so I think that, it's, it, again, it's a very individual discussion, but I do tend to see, um, depending on, you know, as you say, job and stress, um, whether, you know, a woman has young children at home and is she getting enough sleep? All of those things factor into her level of desire. Um, and so, but it's something that needs to be discussed. And I think I also tend to see in my practice, women just, you know, sometimes having intercourse even when they don't want to, to satisfy their partner's needs. And I tell people that's something you need to, to start talking about right away because that that usually only leads to some problems. Very important because communication is a large part of the commitment, the engagement and the intimacy because there's a difference between sex and intimacy and both matter. Absolutely. Well said, Linda. Do you want to address it further? Um, I think that, you know, one of the other things at various times, for probably menopause being the most um, frequent example I see, I there have been occasions where I have had the woman's partner come in with her for a visit to talk about some of the hormonal and physical changes that are happening for her, mm -hmm. for her male partner to better understand what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's an important piece is that, uh, you know, partners need to be aware of, of what's happening. Again, it goes back to having the discussion. There are the discussions in every phase of our life, aren't there? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, and sometimes that can be difficult to broach. But what I'm hearing you say is that it is very important to broach in terms of your your sexual health and, and your overall well-being and, and feelings about yourself and confidence and and, and growing older wiser. I, I love it. You know, Lorinda, thank you for again sharing your expertise with us. We will be back for part three because the questions keep coming and please send your questions in on either Facebook or at the info page. And we are delighted to have had you on today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a total pleasure. And Lorinda is working on a new website, which once we have that, once it's gone live, and we are, you can find out more information about shows at wisehealthforwomenradio.com. We are so pleased that you joined us today and we will be back next week with another interesting guest, new topics, and we will never run out of things to talk about that matter to women, helping women thrive. Make it a great week. Thank you for tuning in today. You can find more shows at wisehealthforwomenradio.com.